Um, I'm going to ask one of my leaders who serves in high school ministry to come up and read the passage this morning. We're reading from Jonah chapter 2, so uh, Kelly Brown, come on up, if you would, and read that. Kelly has been a faithful servant to youth ministry at Valley Bible Church uh, since even long before I was here, and she serves passionately and heartlessly. Okay, Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep and into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, but I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Thank you, Kelly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that this morning you would open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the hope to which we have been called, the glorious riches of the inheritance that we will have one day, and the incredible power that is at work in us, the same power that raised Christ from the grave. Father, open our eyes this morning to see your deep, deep love, your love that is much deeper than uh, our love, your love that is compassionate and wanting to reach out to those who don't know you. Let us see it this morning. Let us be challenged from your word that we might not leave this place and uh, go have lunch and get on with our day, but may, we might be changed. We might be focused on you and what you are trying to do in our world. Open our hearts for this. In Christ's powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Pastor Giese did a great job last week uh, introducing us to the book of Jonah, didn't he? Uh, showing us... Yeah, give him, a, give him a round of applause. Um, I, was, I was blessed to, to hear it from him, and we're breaking this book up into four parts. And I, I wanted to give you a little bit of, of background on a few more things before I get into chapter two today. Nineveh was a, uh, is a place that's mentioned many times in the Bible. Genesis 10, 11 says it was founded by Nimrod, who was a great-grandson of Noah. Uh, Nimrod was a mighty hunter, and it said one of the, the towns that he founded was Nineveh. There are multiple biblical references to Nineveh in uh, n the book of Nahum is a, a prophecy directed at Nineveh. Zephaniah includes, uh, includes verses about Nineveh. Um, it, it's even said that it would be destroyed partially by fire. This is a couple hundred years after the time of, of Jonah. It said that it would be destroyed partially by fire and that the people would be drunk when this happened. Uh, and even extra-biblical historians have confirmed some of these things. They've confirmed that, that when, the, when the city was destroyed, it was because the people were drunk and they were celebrating. That's why they weren't able to defend themselves. And parts of the city uh, you can still find have been burned, and you can see the remains where they were burned. It is, uh, it is a great city, according to the Bible. It later became the capital of Assyria after the time of the, uh, the book of Jonah. And it was filled with many, many gods. 
In the 1800s, a couple of uh, historians and Assyriologists, people who studied Assyria, uh, went and did some excavations in Nineveh. One of them was named George Smith. Uh, George Smith, you, you might recognize the name. He was the one who's credited with translating the Epic of Gilgamesh, the oldest known piece of literature in the world, uh, most people think. And when they did these excavations, they found these relief carvings. They uncovered the temple of Sennacherib, the, the temple of, or the palace of Ashurbanipal, and they found these huge libraries with, with thousands and thousands of relief carvings. And some of these are, can still be seen today in the British Museum. They took carvings off the wall and they took them there. So Nineveh is a very factual place. We have tons of, of history that, that confirms the biblical accounts that it was very polytheistic, filled with many, many gods. Um, and it was a, a pretty incredibly crazy place. Some of these relief carvings will show that Assyrian kings gloated over torturing the people that they defeated. They would talk about uh, brutally torturing the people and then killing them. Not just killing them, but uh, there was a, a sinister evil going on in, in the way that the kings of Assyria, um, who, who made Nineveh their, their capital, the way that they ruled. It was a wicked, wicked place. You, you could not say that Nineveh was a place filled with lovely people. It was a place filled with wicked people. And in fact, we saw in Genesis or in uh, Jonah 1 that God sent Jonah because the, the stench of their wickedness had rose up before God. And you see, God is a just God. And because he is a just God, he will punish sin. The God that I know, the God that many of us serve, he is a just God and he will punish sin. But you need to understand at the outset, this is not God's heart to slam people down for their sin. The heart of God sees people in their sin, and he sees that, that sin has so twisted and manipulated and distorted their understanding, and, and sin has so captured people and pulled them down and, and uh, conformed their minds to think in, in strange ways so that they, they don't even recognize their want and their desire for God. And God looks at that, and he sees the sin of people, and he saw the sin of Nineveh, and even though he's a just God, and he said he would punish that sin, his heart is not to punish. His heart is to have grace and to show grace on these people, people who were not lovely, people who had nothing in them that made them want or uh, uh, have any desire to worship God. And yet he and his love sent Jonah and said, I love these people, and I want you to go show them that I am just, and I will deal with their sins, so ask them to repent. And that is why he sent them. And that's so beautiful, because the God that I serve has done that same thing for me. You see, when God found me, it wasn't that I was lovely, it wasn't that I was beautiful, that I deserved him, that I was close to him, that I was a good enough person, and I was almost there. When God found me, he saw that I was somebody who was rebellious, disobedient to my parents and to him, somebody who wanted nothing to do with him, and yet he chose to give grace to me and show love to me. This is the God that we serve, and this morning as we get into the book of Jonah, you need to understand that the hero of this story is God, because God's love is deep for people who want nothing to do with him. It might also be interesting for you to note that uh, Nineveh, the closest town in modern days is a place called Mosul, Iraq. God sent Jonah to what are now the Iraqi people. For some of us, our, our American version of Christianity and our American idea of God might make that seem a little hard, that God would want to send someone to tell about himself to a people who are filled with pagan gods, who worship false gods, and who might even hate believers. Mosul is the second or third largest city in Iraq. Uh, if you go to Google Maps, any Google Map fans? Anybody who doesn't drive anywhere without going to Google Maps? 
That's me. Uh, if, you, if you go to Google Maps, you can look up Mosul, M-O-S-U-L, Iraq, and it will actually bring up Mosul, Nineveh, Iraq. And if you look um, on the map, just below it, there's a, a little dot that says Nimrod. Remember, that was the name of the founder. You can uh, zoom in on the location, and you can see the remains of some of these towns. If you do a Google image search or Yahoo image search, whatever you want to use, you can find pictures of Nineveh. You can find some of these pictures of the, the, the many gods that were there. <clears throat> it was a big, big city in Iraq, in, in modern-day Iraq. And this is where God sent Jonah. You also need to understand that at this time, Israel was divided. You see, Israel got to a place where they they weren't content anymore with God being their king, and they didn't want God to be their king. They wanted to be like everyone else around them. So they said to God, God, give us a human king, because we want to be like our, uh, our neighbors. And God says, you don't want that. And they said, yes, we do. And God goes, okay. And so he gives them uh, Saul. And Saul was their first king. And then through the progression of kings, uh, things have gotten bad. And, and these kings aren't always good. And in fact, Israel sp- has split into two parts. There's the northern tribes of Israel, and then there's Judah, the southern tribes. And at this point, um, and you can find this in 2 Kings 13, because uh, Jonah was a contemporary with King Jeroboam, which is 2 Kings 14. So just before that, in 2 Kings 13, you can see that Israel and Judah were in a civil war at this point. God had put them on earth, and his desire was that he would be using his people to show his love to the world around him, and that his relationship with his people would be so impacting and so incredible that all the nations around would see, hey, your God is different than my God. Your God does something that my God can't do. Your God is powerful and strong and loving. And yet what Israel is doing is they were so focused on themselves and so um, uh, selfish with God and so petty that they had gotten into a civil war with, with each other. And Israel was fighting against Judah. And even through this, even though they were not being the people they they should have been, and even though the king of Israel in the time of Jonah, Jeroboam II, the Bible says that he did evil in the eyes of God. Even in the time where he did evil in the eyes of God, God was allowing him to expand Israel's borders. Now Jonah would have seen this. He would have seen the fact that because the borders of Israel were being expanded, even under a king who was not following God, he would know that God was gracious and compassionate. That God's love was not dependent on people who acted perfectly, but God was, God's love was, was part of his character, and God desires to show his love even to those who don't deserve it. Jonah would have known this. He would have seen this. And so when God sent him to Nineveh, this is probably what was in his mind. We're going to see later that he had a, an attitude problem, and it troubled him that God wanted to save these people. It was probably because he had seen that God was even gracious to his own people when they were disobedient. God was even showing love to Israel when they weren't living the way that he wanted them to live. And Jonah could see that. And Jonah probably knew the character of God was compassionate and gracious. And that was probably why he was troubled. And so that is the the case in which we find the the setting of the book of Jonah. That's what's going on. We, uh, for this message, we, we wanted it to be called Full Submission, this message series, a lot of times we think of some stories in the Bible, uh, we, we make them into very good children's stories. And they're not always children's stories. The, the flood, Noah's Ark, is, is one of my favorite examples of this. We, we put it in children's books and we're like, oh look, there's animals, yay, it's a happy kid's story. And oh look, the animals went for a boat ride, yay. 
And yet the story of Noah and the ark is a story of God's judgment being poured out. It's a story of God, because he is just, killing people in their sin who would not repent. And Noah preached righteousness for 125 years and nobody repented. No one came to God and God said, I'm done. It's not a children's story when you think about people dying, drowning. And, and we do the same thing with the book of Jonah. Yay, there's a big fish. Oh, look, he gave Jonah a ride. Wasn't that nice? There's some great things here, and we should teach the Word of God to our children. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but there is so much more going on than just uh, somebody who got to swim with some fishes. This is a powerful, powerful story about a loving God. And it's a story about our need to be fully submitted to God. Because it's not until we have full submission to God that He's really going to use us. I don't know if you've realized this, but usually my experience has been, and and He's gracious, sometimes He doesn't always do this, but usually it seems like God does the most through the people who are most submitted to Him. And through those who are not fully submitted to Him, who, who don't care about Him, who might claim Him but are not choosing to represent Him well, it has not been my experience that God uses those people to represent Himself in big ways. It's those who are fully submitted. So when you think Jonah, you've got to remember, it's not about a fish. This is a story about God's love and full submission of His people. Now let's go back through this passage and, and just look at it and see, what, <clears throat> see what's in there. Starting in verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now I don't know if you realize this, but air, oxygen, doesn't go into your belly. I know as children we think, okay, I breathe in and I put food in my mouth so it goes into my belly. Oh, okay, so there's air in the belly of the fish. That's why he's in there. I don't think that's the case. If you see in chapter 1, it says the Lord provided a great fish. The Lord had prepared this fish. And I believe the fact that Jonah is alive inside this fish, that there is oxygen enough for him to breathe, I believe that in and of itself is a miracle of God. Many people believe that this fish didn't just swallow him. He actually took him in the direction towards Nineveh. Because Tarshish, where Jonah had fled to, was opposite where Nineveh was. And many people believe that this fish um, actually swam him over to Nineveh. And I think that was another miracle. But the fact that he's even alive inside this fish shows that our God is miraculous. It was a miracle. The other thing I want you to notice from verse 1 is it says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Okay? He's praying from inside the fish. There are two prayers, as we're going to see, that Jonah prayed in this time. He's praying inside the fish, and this is a prayer reflecting on his first prayer, as we're going to see. Look at verse 2. Oh, I'm sorry. Before we get there, uh, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Do you remember how the sailors' gods were weak? The sailors had gods, and they were praying to their gods, but their gods were incapable of doing anything. But Jonah's God was powerful. And the sailors' gods were dead. They were useless. But Jonah's God was omniscient and alive. It reminds me of 1 Samuel chapter 5, where the Ark of the Covenant is captured. The, The Ark of the Covenant for Israel at the time, it was basically the symbolic representation of God's presence. 
and they treated it like a good luck charm, and God allowed it to be captured and taken away from them for a while. And it was captured by some people and put in this pagan god's temple. This pagan god was named Dagon. And when they put the ark in Dagon's temple, they set it next to the statue of Dagon, and they, they went out. Well, they came in the next day, and here's the ark, and Dagon's statue had fallen down on its face, almost as if it was bowing to the ark of the covenant. And so, of course, the pagan worshipers think, huh, must have been an earthquake. So they prop it back up. They set it back up there. Okay, good. We've got Dagon. We've got the Ark of the Covenant. We've got multiple gods. Yay, this is great. They come back the next morning. Dagon has fallen down again, and this time his head and his hands are broken off because God wanted to show that there are no gods like him and that every other false god that is worshipped has no power. The idea of a head being broken off, it had no wisdom, it had no knowledge, its hands being broken off, it was useless, it could do nothing. God was trying to show this. And when the, the temple of Dagon housed the Ark of the Covenant and, and the statue of Dagon fell down, it was God showing he was powerful over and against anything else that is called God. And so when it says Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, we've got to understand Jonah's God is a powerful God. The gods of the sailors could do nothing, but Jonah's God could do everything. So verse 2, he said, In my distress I called to the Lord. You see, this is the second prayer. Or you could say this is the first prayer, because technically him praying in the fish was the second prayer. In my distress I called to the Lord. When was he in his distress? Was it when he was in the fish? It was when he was sinking in the water. When he was drowning in the water, he was, he was in his distress. He's recounting his prayer in the water. In the moments where death seemed imminent, where it seemed that the last bits of oxygen were almost gone, he, he cried out to God, and his prayer might have been nothing more than, God, save me, I'll go, save me. Because when you're drowning, you don't have the ability to pray deep theological prayers. But sometimes all God needs to act is, God, save me. I'll do it. I'll go. Save me, God. And I believe he repented in that prayer. We're going to see that in verse 9, but I really think as Jonah is drowning, as he's been thrown into the water, I believe there was repentance in his heart, and somehow he cried out to God, God, save me. I was wrong. Save me. I'll go. I repent. I was wrong. And God saved him. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave... I called for help, and you listened to my cry. He had done nothing at this point to act on his intentions. So often we think that God will, will uh, work in us. God will save us. God will, will honor us once we start doing the things that he has called us to do. And in some senses that's true. But in the same time, we need to recognize that God is a gracious God. And at the time where we repent, God acts. And when we repent, God relents. When we repent, when we turn away from our sin, not when we start living perfectly and we get everything figured out, but at the point where we turn away and put our faith in Him, He relents from the discipline that He brings. Jesus calls out to us. 
that humanity with all its sin can be saved simply by turning to Him. Do you understand this? If you don't know Jesus, you need to be clear this morning on this one fact. Jesus does not require that you have everything together in your life and you have started living perfectly in order for Him to save you. All He wants from you is for you to believe in Him and to turn away from those things that have trapped you, to turn away from those sins and say, I'm willing to give them up. I might not be able to do it perfectly right now, but I'm willing to let go of my grasp on these things, and I'm willing to give you everything and pursue you. And that is where Jesus comes through, because His love is dependent on His character, not on our perfection. Our God is a loving God. And before we ever begin to live for Him or accomplish great things for Him, He gives grace to those who repent and believe. Verse 3, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled around me, all your waves and breakers. He said, you hurled me into the deep, God. Now, if we read the story, we see that, in fact, it was the sailors who had hurled him into the deep. It was the humans who actually take him, took him and threw him over the side of the boat. It wasn't like the hand of God reached out of the thundercloud, picked him up, and tossed him in the water. It was the sailors who did it, and yet Jonah recognizes that God was behind it. He sees that God was disciplining him. And if you don't have an accurate understanding of the discipline of God, uh, maybe you were, you were beaten as a child, and so it doesn't make sense that a loving God would discipline. Discipline has to do with child rearing. It has to do with correction so that the right way can be made known and followed. And when God throws Jonah into the deep, and Jonah recognizes it was God who threw him overboard, not just the sailors, he recognizes that God is trying to correct a wrong behavior in him. The discipline of the Lord often involves actions of other people. I one time was was fired from a ministry. I thought it was my my ideal dream job. For a summer, I, I... was able to drive a houseboat and teach kids how to water ski and wakeboard for summer camp. Suffering for the Lord, right? I was fired from that, and though the boss didn't know it, God was disciplining me for something in my life at that time. And God used my boss to, to, to fire me, and, and I didn't understand it at the time. And then as I reflected, I said, God did that. God was trying to show me some things. God was trying to get my attention with some some sins in my life. And when I recognized that, I was able to let go of any hostility that I felt towards my boss for firing me in a way that I felt unjust because I said, no, he was being controlled by God. And though there was a bigger thing going on here than what he understood, I know that it was God and that God was bringing that discipline because God loves me and he wasn't willing to let me be uh, consumed by my sin. He was trying to rescue me and save me. In verse 3, he also says, all your waves and breakers. He said, your waves, God. And we remember in chapter 1, verse 9, he had said, my God made the sea. When the sailors asked him, Who, uh, who's your God? He said, my God made the sea. What? Your God made the sea that's having this crazy storm right now and these waves that we can't handle? Your God is in charge of this? Your God is responsible for this? He's like, yep. I'm in trouble. (laughs) It was God who made the sea. It was God who was was in control of the sea. And we see this with Jesus. We see so many times Jesus doing supernatural things with bodies of water, like walking on them, like calming them. 
We see that the God of the Old Testament is the same God who is representative Jesus, who is Jesus. That he has control over nature, control over the water, the God who made the seas and the lakes, the God who can bring storms. This is the same God. Verse 4, he says, I said, I have been banished from your sight. This is still past tense. He's still thinking about his prayer that he prayed in the water as he was drowning. He said, I've been banished from your sight. He felt that at that point he had been kicked out of the presence of God. He had been done away with. God wanted nothing to do with him. And yet God saw Jonah when he ran to Tarshish to get on the boat. God heard him in the water as he was crying out this prayer. And God was even with him in the fish right now. Though at times in our lives we feel that we have been banished from God's sight because of the situations and the things that are happening to us, it does us good to remember that God is with us. He has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. You cannot get to a place where God cannot see you. Your your sin cannot put you in a spot that God can't hear your prayers. He's a loving, omnipotent, omniscient God. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He says, Um, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. You see, Jonah realizes at this point, he says, I'm going to look again towards your holy temple. He recognizes that the fish is not what he needs to be saved from. He recognizes that the fish is, in fact, the sovereign hand of God acting in a way that has already saved him. The fact that he is alive inside of this fish and God did not let him drown lets him realize that God is not done with him. And in fact, he realizes this so much that he he knows he's still alive in this fish. Okay, think about this. He's been in there for a couple days. Uh, You know, it's dark in there. There's probably slimy, gross things all over him and he probably doesn't have much room and he's probably cramped up and it probably smells horrible and his skin might even be burning from the acid. But somehow there's enough oxygen for him to breathe and he's alive and he recognizes that because this fish has saved him and because he is alive in this fish, he will in fact be used by God again. He sees that God wasn't finished with him just because he messed up. And he sees this fish as being God's way of saving him. And so he can say, I will look again towards your holy temple. He knew that because God had saved him by this fish and he was still alive in this fish, that he would see dry land again. He knew that God had given him a second chance that even when he directly disobeyed and defied the living God who was in control of the seas, God saved him when he cried out and gave him a second chance to accomplish that which God had asked him to do. (coughs) Excuse me. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. See, at this point, he figured he was dead as he was sinking from the boat. He figured he was as good as dead. The imagery there, just uh, verse 6, it's going to go on. The roots of the mountain, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. He, he thought, I'm, I'm a goner. As he was going into the water, before the fish came, he thought, I'm, I'm done, I'm toast. But even in that, he cried out to God. <clears throat> I was swimming with a friend one time, a couple years ago, and she noticed that I breathed very poorly when I swam. And after one or two laps in the pool, I was so out of breath, not swimming fast, not swimming hard, but just trying to, just trying to do my three strokes and then take a breath. She noticed that I was so out of breath, she said, 
and I was asking her, because she was a good swimmer, I said, help me with this. I, I can't breathe well when I swim. You know, I, I try and calm down and relax, and I try and do it, and yet I just, I start getting this, this tension inside, like I don't have enough air. And she goes, that usually only happens to people who have almost drowned at some point. Has that ever happened? And I thought about it, and I said, it's happened twice. You see, I grew up in Santa Cruz, and um, one of the, the children's programs that they have in Santa Cruz area is called Junior Lifeguards. And you go to the beach uh, from 10 a.m. till 3 p.m., and then they have these lifeguards and all these kids, and they teach you water safety, and they give you exercise, and you're out in the sun, and you're learning how to, how to handle the waves and all this stuff, and it's great. It's a, it was a great thing. At Junior Lifeguards one time, we were swimming. Now, if, uh, if this line right here, if that's the, the shore, if that's where the water meets the sand, we had to swim out to a buoy here, swim around this way about 100 yards, and then come back in. But right as I was turning that corner to come back in, I looked behind me and realized that there was a huge, huge wave. Now, most of the breakers, most of them had been breaking up near the shore. And you know, they were maybe two, three feet high, not a big deal. As I'm swimming this time, and I'm getting to the end, and I, I turn that corner... I look back real quick and I realize that instead of the waves breaking up there, there is a wave that was probably, the lifeguard said, probably 12 feet tall. Bigger than, uh, well, this is a 10-foot poster, so probably even bigger than that. And you got to realize, when you're in the water and a wave that big comes, you are helpless. There's nothing you can do. And as that wave hit me, um, though I was, I think, about 60, 70 yards out, it pushed me all the way down, and I was rolling on the sand. And it pushed me so far that it rolled me along the bottom that by the time I got up, I could stand with my head above water. It rolled me underwater for probably 30 seconds, and I remember in that time, it was the scariest time in my life because you are just being tossed around like a rag doll. There's nothing you can do, and you're trying to swim, and you can't go anywhere, and you're just being slammed into things, and you realize that the breath in your lungs is leaving you. And there was another time when I was surfing where uh, <clears throat> kelp, sea kelp, can grow up to a foot a day. And so sometimes the, the sea kelp would just be this, this huge, massive thing, and you're surfing over the top of all these weeds. Well, uh, on your surfboard, you have a leash that's attached to your foot. One time I had fallen off my board, and so I came back up. My leash had gone underneath the seaweed, and I tried to swim up, and I realized it was caught. And, and in that moment where I, I couldn't get to, I could see the surface, I could see the light, but I couldn't get there. You, you freak out. I don't know if you, any of you ever had an experience like this. You, you, it's the scariest thing I've probably ever experienced, knowing that your breath is fading away and you can do nothing about it. I think that's where Jonah was. And I think it was in this time, this darkest moment of his, that he cried out to God. And again, it probably wasn't much. It wasn't a deep theological prayer where he started off. Our Father who art in heaven. No, he just probably said, God, save me. Save me, I'll go. And God reached down and he saves him. Verse, in chapter 6, it says, But you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. God is the one who brings discipline. For God, he said, God hurled me into the sea, but God is also the one who saves. And sometimes God needs to get our attention, and so he allows for, for things to happen. It reminds me of Psalm 58, 51.8. Psalm 51.8 says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you, God, have crushed rejoice. This is a psalm of David. 
when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery. And it's a beautiful psalm. It starts off, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. You see, in this psalm, David is crying out to God, and he says, You have broken my bones. My, my soul, everything around me is in torment. You have crushed me. But let those same bones that you have broken, let them rejoice in you, because you are not just a God who brings discipline. You are a God who, in your love, chooses to save from that discipline. That is the God that we serve. Job one twenty one. After, if you know the story of Job, after his, his, uh, all of his children have died, all of his wealth has been taken away like that, he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the next chapter, he says, shall we receive good from God and not evil? You see, sometimes God has to send hard things to get our attention, to let us realize that what we are doing is in fact in rebellion or rejection to what he wants us to be doing. But take heart, because the same God who brings those hard times, the same God who brings those difficulties into our life, is the God who wants us to turn to him and repent, and he is willing to save us. Psalm 139.78 says, Where can I go from your presence? If I go down into the depths, you are there. And as Jonah is sinking, as he's going down into the depths, God still sees him in his prayer in the darkest point of his life. As he calls out to God, God hears that prayer and God sends this fish to rescue him. I want you to know this morning that there is no place that you can be in, no place that is so dark or deep no place that your sin has trapped you in, no place that the situation or the circumstances of life have, have barred you in with. There is no place that you cannot get a prayer through to God. From the deepest place in your life, from the darkest time, from your most miserable hour, from the time when you feel there is no hope, God is still listening, and He will be there. The only time I know of in Scripture that it says God won't hear our prayers is 1 Peter 3, 7. And in that passage, it says, uh, Husbands, love your wives and treat them with gentleness and respect so that nothing hinders your prayer life. And I believe that, that uh, the role of a man in a family is huge in God's eyes. And the Bible says in that verse that when a husband is not loving his wife with gentleness and respect, it says that his prayers are going to be hindered. But that's the only time I know of in Scripture that it says our prayers can't be heard by God. And I think he still even hears those. I think he just maybe isn't willing to respond to them until we are uh, being good stewards of what he has given us, men. No matter where you are, no matter what the dilemma is, God can hear your prayers. And God is a God whose love is, is right there at the door knocking. He will judge when he has to, but he would rather show his grace. Cry out to him in your time of need. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have everything in your life fixed in order to find his help. At the time when everything is a mess, when it's chaotic, cry out to God in that time, for he is wanting to come through. You see, the Bible says that Jesus came not because we were great. Jesus came when we were his enemies, when everything in our lives was against him, when we were messed up, wrapped up in our own sin. Jesus came and died for us because he loved us. It's not based on our perfect living. It's based on his love. And his love is more powerful than my screw-ups and my mistakes. His love is good. 
Verse 7, when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. You see, from the deepest part of the ocean as he was sinking down, his prayer went all the way up through the water, up through the natural earth, and got through to God in his holy temple. There was no physical barrier. There was no situation that could prevent that. Then verse 8, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who cling to worthless idols, who hold on to them and aren't willing to let go, forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, what are these worthless idols we're talking about? Well, the sailors had some worthless idols, right? The sailors had some gods who couldn't do anything. Surely Nineveh had some worthless, weak idols. Within a hundred years of this time, Sennacherib is going to become the king of Assyria, and he's going to make Nineveh his capital city. This will be about 90 years after the time that Jonah was sent. To this day, you can see these carvings in Nineveh that stand, and they have the body of an ox or a horse and the head of a human and wings on it. It was a polytheistic place filled with many gods, and yet they were worthless. God even proves that they were worthless, because in 2 Kings 19.35, Sennacherib has decided that he is now going to attack Jerusalem. He's going to lead a conquest against Jerusalem, and Hezekiah is the king at this time. And so Sennacherib comes with all his men to attack Jerusalem, and Hezekiah prays, and God prophesied that he would save the city. And the Lord killed 185,000 troops of Sennacherib in their sleep, because God was powerful. And though they could have these temples in Nineveh filled with all these idols, those idols were weak, and they could do nothing. You know, God even said that Sennacherib, uh, he prophesied that Sennacherib would die in his own land by the sword. And sure enough, his sons killed him while he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, which if you are into biblical historians at all, Josephus says that Nisroch was Dagon. The same God who had fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant. The same God who God had proved was worthless. And so Sennacherib, in all his, in all his vast understanding and his great might, he thought, was nothing because he was clinging to worthless idols that had no power. His gods were worthless. So the sailors had their idols. Nineveh had its idols. But you need to see this. Jonah had an idol too. And as much as this, this verse, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs, as much as that's talking about Nineveh and about the sailors, it's talking about Jonah. He's talking about himself. Jonah had been clinging to an idol, and it was an idea that God only loved the Jewish people. Jonah's idol said, God loves us, period. You see, God wanted Israel to represent him to the world around him. God's hope was that Israel would showcase God, that their relationship with him would show everyone else that God is powerful and worthy. That's what God wanted, and yet Israel saw themselves as the end product of what God was doing. They didn't see themselves as ambassadors who represented God and were supposed to take the beauty and the love of this God to the people around them. They were selfish with it. And Jonah ran to Tarshish because his idolatrous ideas were challenged when God sent him to to Nineveh. And he couldn't bear the thought of God saving people who he hated. And this was an idol for him. This, This God that is only about me, that was an idol in his life. And as he clung to that idol, it proved to be worthless. And in clinging to that, he was forfeiting the grace that could have been his. 
Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God because if we believe in God, we must believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. There is blessing for those who seek and obey God. But if you're clinging to your idols instead of to God, if you're clinging to your sin, whatever the idol might be in your life, you will not see that blessing of God because you are forfeiting the grace that could be yours. Jeremiah 2.13 says, My people have forsaken me, God, the spring of living water. And the second sin is they've hewn out cisterns that are broken, that don't hold water. He says, I wanted to fill them. I wanted to satisfy them. And instead of doing that, instead of coming to me, this constant stream, this constant spring, they, they carved out their own cisterns that were broken, that couldn't even really hold water. They traded me and everything that I had to offer them for something weak and and worthless that they created. And we have done that in our lives, so many of us. Verse 9 says, But with a song of thanksgiving I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. God deserves to be adored and thanked for what He has done. He says, what I have vowed, I will do. You see, that's why I think that Jonah repented when he was sinking in the water. That's why I think that repentance was such a big part of this. Because he said, what I have vowed to do, I'm resolved. I'm going to do it now. When I was sinking in the water, it might have just been, God save me, I'll go to Nineveh. But now he's been in the fish for three days. He's had some time to chew on it. He's thinking about it. He goes, no, I'm I'm going. I screwed up once, but I'm not going to let that get me down. I'm going to go do what God has called me to do. And then it's beautiful. It says, salvation comes from the Lord. Before he was spit out of the fish, Jonah says this. Salvation comes from the Lord. Genesis 50.20 says, what man intended for evil, God intended for good. Joseph says that. He recognizes that all the, the horrible things his brothers did to him. The fact that he was sold as a slave into a foreign nation, falsely accused of rape, and then abandoned in prison. God used all those things to bring about salvation. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love Him. Psalm 119.50 says, This is my comfort in affliction, that your promise gives me life. Our God is all about salvation. His desire is not to punish. His desire is to save. He'll punish because He's just, but He wants to save. That's what He is all about. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Amen. See, God's love for people is so, so deep. And my question this morning is, do you reflect that? Do I reflect that? This God is going to relentlessly chase down those who want nothing to do with Him, who are filled with idols in their lives because He loves them and wants to show them grace. Do you have that same kind of heart? Do I? If you don't know Christ this morning, I want you to know God is chasing you down. His desire is to save you. His desire is to show His love to you. And sometimes we as Christians do not do a good job of showing you that. We get selfish, and I apologize for that. But God loves you deeply, and He wants you to know His love in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to us when we were not so lovely. In the same way that Jonah was sent to these people who are now the Iraqi people, when they were not so lovely, God sent Jesus to us when we were not so lovely because He loved us. When you are fully submitted to God, you're no longer refusing to obey when He calls you to share His love. When you're fully submitted to God, you don't run to Tarshish. But I think many of us, we run to Tarshish. And the worst way that we could respond to this message this morning 
is by not reaching out to those who we know need Christ. And for you, Tarshish might mean that you don't get lunch with that coworker who God's put on your heart that they need to know about him. And every time you go out to lunch by yourself, instead of asking that person to have lunch so that you can share God's love with them, that might be Tarshish for you. Tarshish might be uh, countless hours of TV when God has put it on your heart that your neighbor across the street needs to know him. And you think, well, that's scary. I'd much rather just sit here in the comfort of my own home in this little world that I've created. I'd much rather just sit here instead of going. Don't make God hurl you into the deep. I don't know what your Tarshish might be. But when God puts it on our heart, when God uh, wants to show his love to this world, we need to be a people who see ourselves as ambassadors. We don't need to be selfish with our love. We don't need to be the kind of Americans who say, Jesus only loves America. Or we don't need to be the kind of people who say, Jesus only loves me, but you, oh man, you're too lost. He doesn't want you. And we, we do this. We know people and we think they're so far, there's no way that they would want God. Are you kidding me? My father is so good. He loves me and he forgives me. Who wouldn't want that? I don't know what your Tarshish is. It might be just talking sports or talking cars with your buddy instead of ever bringing up Christ. That might be your Tarshish. You might have friends who you talk about your hobbies. You talk about quilting with them, whatever, and you never bring up Christ. Don't make God hurl you into the deep. Repent, serve Him, and follow Him. Why cling to worthless idols? Repent and go to those who need Christ. Trust in the power of God and don't rely on your fears. God is all about love. Do not leave this room today without a person in mind that you have resolved to tell about Christ. And do not leave this room today without deciding you will tell them if you know about Christ. Our Father in heaven, we are humbled by the fact that you relentlessly pursue us to show us your love. And Father, in the times when we get a mentality that it's us versus them, in times where we have this idea that, that we need to be selfish with your love or, or that we choose to do that, forgive us for that, Lord. Change our hearts. May we come to you and pursue you and serve you in, in a way that we take your love to those who need it. Do that, Father. Please do that in an amazing way. Work in our hearts. Give us the boldness to take your love to Christ. To take your love, uh, to take Christ to those who don't know you. Father, may we not be content with our comfortable lives wrapped up in our Tarshish, wrapped up in the things that cause us to flee from you. May we get outside of our comfort zone and be bold with your gospel and bold with your love. For you are a God who loves deeply. You are a God who saved us, not because we deserved it, but because you loved us. In the powerful and mighty name of Jesus Christ, I ask that you would let no one here leave today thinking, oh, good sermon, and do nothing about it. May we be a people of action, not just of word. May we not just be sermon tasters and critiquers. May we be people who are challenged and motivated by your Spirit to take the powerful love of Christ to a nation that needs it a world that needs it. In Jesus' name I pray.